Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of MLOps Coffee Sessions. I'm your co-host Vishnu and I'm joined today by Dimitrios as always. Hey Dimitrios. What's up everyone? I today actually have a coffee for our coffee session. Ah, very and nice. You're joining me. <laughs> I'm I'm going to say thanks to our guest Pablo for being patient with us because you all don't know this, but just before we started, we spent the last 10 minutes with a bit of a Zoom hiccup in my travel setup because I am not at home. If you couldn't tell, the people that are listening definitely can't tell, but those that are watching see that I'm in an undisclosed location on an island <laughs> in Greece. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk with Pablo, my man from booking. Vishnu, I stole it away from you. You take it though, man. No, that's okay. That's okay. I think everyone's wondering if you're in a CIA safe house or something. Uh, but today we have the pleasure of being joined by Pablo Estevez from Booking.com, where he is a senior machine learning leader. I'll let him give you his entire bio, but we're very excited to have Pablo join us, especially after uh, where I believe some of you have joined our reading groups where we were able to discuss the paper that he wrote. Uh, we're all big fans of his work and are very excited to dive into the seminal paper, 150 Successful Machine Learning Models. Uh, and the lessons learned at Booking.com. Pablo, thank you for joining us. No, thank you for the for the invite. Super happy to be here. Shame that I couldn't join the, the book club last time. I was in holidays at the time, but happy that we had another opportunity. No, I mean, now everybody can hear the book club and everybody can hear your perspective on this paper. So I think, think it all worked out. Um, I think many of the people that have, you know, listening to our podcast that have been in the community have had the privilege of, you know, being exposed to your work, uh, but maybe don't know as much about you, the person and your background and how you ended up at booking.com. Maybe we can kick things off by learning a little bit about your journey to where you are now. Sure, sure. I think it's, it's actually interesting because uh, I started with booking and data science, machine learning, etc. Uh, eight years ago. And even though it's not that long ago, I think it has changed a lot the way people grow into these roles. By that time, more or less, was a bit of transition. But before that, there were not many careers on machine learning, on data science for, for these kind of industries. And most of the people who joined at the time, they were coming from some diverse background. In my case, I came from electronic engineering. So I was doing uh, radio waves and stuff like that. Then I moved into robotics. Robotics moved into machine learning. Then I was working a bit on uh, engineering side of it. But the, through, that, through that journey, I got involved into data techniques and machine learning techniques. And that's how I ended up working on this field in the case of Booking.com. But you see many of my colleagues of the time, they were coming from completely diverse backgrounds. We had people from aerospace engineering, from uh, statistics, mathematics, bioinformatics. It was quite, quite mixed. And then for the last uh, seven years, actually, I've been working in Booking. Uh, mostly, I was working always as a machine learning scientist. The title changes also with, with the evolution of the field. You could call it now machine learning scientist. And I've worked mostly on the front end side of the of the company. So the side that is exposed to our users, fees for accommodations, and then now for non-accommodation products. Booking is expanding to other uh, markets. It's now doing flights, attraction, transportation. And I'm working lately on that uh, on that area. Got it, got it. Um, quite the diverse journey that got you to where you are today in terms of booking.com and, and being in the hospitality industry. Uh, very cool to hear all about that. One question I have just to start, you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, you have a very diverse group of people you work with and that your background is very um, uh, sort of cross-functional. I would love to understand you know, how big is the machine learning group at booking? And can you give us a little bit of context into how 
machine learning is run at, at booking in terms of a team and organizational standpoint? Sure. So um, let's see, we, we have different organizations in booking depending on what kind of goal that part of the organization want to achieve. It's an important thing to notice in there is that booking is not a company that, that uh, makes or sells or its main product is not machine learning. Machine learning is one of the tools we have to achieve our business goals and uh, to support our partners and support our customers, right? And depending on the part of the company, the, the, the way that you can use machine learning differs a bit. We have a couple of hundred people. I don't have the, the precise number. Also depends a bit on where you put the distinction between machine learning scientists, machine learning engineer, data scientists, et cetera. But there is a, oh, a couple of hundred people working on related disciplines across the company. And depends a bit on the area. In some areas where you have heavy product development, you have very multi multidiscipline teams, right? You might have a, pay, a team working, let's say, on a, on a user-facing product, let's say the, the hotel page, to give you an example. You can imagine there is a couple of designers, a couple of developers, maybe a product manager. And if you think that there is enough material in there for machine learning to help, you might also get a, a machine learning scientist. So that's one setup. You have this kind of multi-skill team, normally coordinated by a, a PM, a product manager, who understands what is the end goal that you want to achieve within the team. And everybody achieves in from their discipline. And you, you can see very, very nice collaborations in there. Sometimes you make a model, you are developing it, you discuss with a copywriter who tries to find how to explain it. When you are discussing with the copywriter, you realize that the model you were building doesn't really translate to the user need you were trying to, to satisfy. Or when you talk to the designer, the designer come up and say, okay, very nice model, but I cannot line the user in the experience that you are designing. So I need your model to give me more specific uh, answer so I can actually put the user on the right setup. Or I think that the model is, in a, is exposed in a part of the, of the journey where the user still needs options. So I don't need one alternative. You need your model to output 10 alternatives, right? So they have a better understanding on that. And the developer could come and say, yeah, the features you're requesting, they take too long to, to fetch. So I actually cannot deploy the model you are thinking in this part of the journey, right? So that's one setup. In other parts of the company, oh, yeah, sorry, you had something? No, just saying, just saying, got it, got it. Yeah, I would yeah. love to understand your other setups. In other parts of the company where you have a much more focused ML uh, topic, say fraud detection, you can imagine there is a very heavy component of ML in there, then you do have ML organizations. When you have several ML people working, could be still a bit mixed between ML scientists, data scientists, ML engineers. Maybe the manager of the team is a specific data science uh, skilled person. But even there, the, I think the, the main uh, driving guideline is that we focus on what we want to build. So even if you are working on fraud or cybersecurity, you would probably have lawyers involved somehow in the organization because that's part of the of it. If you are working on the partner facing, you will have commercial uh, managers because whatever model you are doing will interact with actual people who manage properties and you have to make sure that you have a good alignment and what you are making in there, right? But it depends a bit on the organization. And then maybe there is a third part, which is infrastructural teams. So this two I described are two different types of uh, organizations that support product development in different ways. And you also have internal products, so since there are infrastructure that we all use within Booking, and they do have also kind of a technical organization where you mostly have developers and if it is for machine learning, developers and machine learners who are building things like model engines or uh, monitoring system or capabilities, right? You can have, I don't know, image recognition capabilities, things like this. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. It's very helpful to hear this context for how booking actually organizes its machine learning teams and, and thinks about how on a you know human sort of people level and a human resource level, how machine learning fits in. Because I think everybody that's read this paper walks away with the sense that booking is an extremely product and user-focused culture. 
this is not just a functional group kind of company. This is how can we help the customer? How does our technology uh, advance that? And machine learning is one of those. I think that's one of the things I walked away uh, from the paper uh, feeling. And so with that, I think it would be really cool to start talking a little bit more about the paper and its takeaways. Um, to start, this is one of the most popular papers that people kind of come back to continuously. I'd love to understand a little bit, how did you come up to, you know, to want to write this paper? How did this effort materialize and to have so many, so much knowledge packed into such a short amount of time? How did you do that and why? Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, I've been about seven years in Booking, and especially the first year that I was in there, like the first two, three years, there was a lot of exploration going on. Not only by me, there was a, a whole set of people in there. I joined a team that was already producing quite some interesting material. The other two people who are uh, authors of this paper, Lucas and Temis, they were joining also more or less at that time. And as I said, there was a lot of exploration. We're really trying everywhere within, in particular in our case, the front end part of uh, Booking.com to try to find value. And that was, again, as you mentioned, is part of the company culture, right? Every other team was also just trying to look where is the value for the company, for the guests. Uh, there's not mention often, but also for the partner. I mean, we're a, a two-sided marketplace and we have to care also for our uh, properties, right? And in the case of ML, it was the same idea. Let's try to explore where can we use ML to add value to all of these uh, components of the, of the marketplace. And there was a process, I mean, it's, if you read a paper, it might look like a very uh, organized story where you think about all of these ideas. Of course, it was a lot more organic, right? So you have product teams, they, they create the hypothesis. Normally, the hypothesis are coming from user stories. So users uh, research, come up with an idea, okay, there is a lot of people looking for flexible travel. We need to offer you know, alternatives, things like this. And then you start exploring different options. But it was a very, a really, very productive period on this uh, exploration. And the, the team grew and the, we started improving our methods in a way that allowed us to kind of make the exploration more effective. And by the time of this paper, that was three years ago, we basically look back and say, OK, we have done a ton of uh, exploration. We have done a ton of models. We have tested many things. And we actually have been successful in many of them. I just wanted to highlight. So the paper focused on 150 successful applications. There are things that work. Behind this, there is. <laughs> Another couple of hundred of things that did not work and that also teaches something, right? The way things always are. And basically, basically was, uh, the paper was looking back. Say, let's try to look at all of this uh, work and let's try to identify if there are patterns that can help us and other practitioners be more effective on using machine learning to get value. Yeah, it makes, makes, makes perfect sense. Demetrios, I see you. I see you holding that mic there. What are you thinking? Man, I just, I'm fascinated by what you were talking about before on the different compositions of teams and how these teams end up maybe sparking creativity within each other. And so were you on one of the teams that were multidisciplinary or were you on the strict ML team or were you doing much more of a platform side? What was your role when you were looking at that? Now, most, most of my time in booking, I've been on the multidisciplinary team. So because I was working on front end and in there, you, I mean, your main client is the customer to come, who comes to booking.com. Your exposition channel is very much driven by design. You have certain requirements on uh, performance. So I was always in this kind of multi-purpose teams, multi-skill team that is trying to serve a user need. At some point, also exploring with this organizational aspect, uh, we did create a team that was mostly ML people, but this ML people was a support team for a lot of different product teams. So the projects we were developing were still multi-skilled, just organizationally, it made sense at some point to centralize some of this knowledge, just because the amount of demand of models and, and output 
Actually, if you see a bit on the, on the beginning of the story we were telling in there, one thing we noticed is that we realized that there were two types of models we could offer. There were very specific models. You work with one team in one place. I don't know, examples, there are many. Hotel page, uh, gallery. You have the photos. You want to know which photos best. It's a very specific problem. You can make a very targeted one. That's what you could very much do if you are in the hotel page team. But we realized that we could also get value from more generic models that could be serving many different teams. And that's what we tried to serve. We were in this team that was a machine learning team that was interacting with all of these different disciplines. So project-wise, it was still something you could do with the other disciplines. But we thought, okay, if I can maybe, instead of making a model for the gallery of the photos of the hotel, I make a photo ranker that can be used in the hotel page, the search result, the different parts of the funnel. Mm. Then I'm actually able to expand a bit more my, I reduce a bit the performance of the model, that's one thing, but because you are not targeting a specific case, so signals are more diluted, the, the relation between uh, features and, and target uh, labels is a bit weaker. But now you have a much wider application, so your overall impact on the business and the customer experience is also bigger. Yeah, let's zoom into that part of the business that you're talking about, because one thing that I took away from the paper was how you were you talking about driving true business impact is amazingly hard with machine learning. And I was wondering about like this idea of how you can be more clear on the problem that you're trying to solve. This is one thing that we've talked to many about. And it seems like you guys learned a lot when you were putting all of these successful models into production and the non-successful ones. But is there something like that you could help us understand? Like, what are some strategies that you found really work when you're trying to figure out what problem you're solving and how to help the impact, how to make sure that it impacts it more? Like you were talking about saying, oh, well, there's a bit of a trade-off, but if I can reuse this model in other areas of the business, I get more impact. Are there other strategies that you found that were helpful in that sense? It's a combination of, of many things. I think we're going to touch on, on several aspects. Um, there is one very big enabler, which is uh, two of them. So on one hand, I mentioned a bit of this already. We're in a, in a company that has very clear objectives as a business objective and customer experience objectives in this case. So I think the first thing is aligning to that, right? Understanding that as a machine learning practitioner, you're bringing a tool, but you are not the outcome. Depends on the industry. I mean, if you are in a company that actually sells a machine learning solution, maybe the outcome is the model itself. But if your company is selling other type of products, satisfying a different need, you realize that you are a tool to this end, right? And that means that your end goal cannot be precision or recall or anything like that. Your end goal is achieving that goal. If that goal is enabling more people to find the right accommodation or maximizing profit for your stakeholders, for your shareholders, or whatever is the goal that you are trying to achieve in there, I think that's the first um, step. Then you have to start finding that gap because I don't know directly, I cannot force people to, to book accommodations, I cannot force a certain behavior. So I have to start filling that gap up to my skill. What can I do within my skill that will eventually lead to that? Uh, in the case of booking, uh, the way we will learn that we learn how to satisfy these needs and that we test them is through hypothesis testing. This, I mean, it, it drives a whole discussion on A-B testing, experimentation, etc. I think the concept, the overall concept is actually a scientific concept, which is hypothesis testing. You start with an hypothesis, and these hypotheses are the ones who will try to tie your uh, idea, your technical idea, to this end goal. So if my end goal is helping people go through the funnel quicker because I see that will save them time, et cetera, et cetera, then I start building my hypothesis. If I put better recommendations on the ranking, they will more easily find the right solution. Therefore, they will not have that much uh, to explore several options. They will get them closer to their end goal. So you're right that my hypothesis kind of ties 
the thing that I can actually affect, I can do a better ranker to my end goal. So all of this is nice because it gets you a bit on the, on the planning. And then there are two more dimensions in there. One of them is uh, having a, a good tool set, like having different ways in which you can affect. When I say I want to improve my ranking, it's just nice, but there are many ways in which I could try to do it. Actually, if you go one step further, if I want to improve decision-making on the user, ranking is just one way to do it. Copy is another, design is another. Uh, there are many different ways in which you can improve the decision-making process of the user. If you choose to go for ranking, there are many ways to do it. So having this diversity allows you to explore many options and try to find the next one. And the last element on here is capability of measurement. So being able to know if your hypothesis actually realizes, right? So if I make a different ranker, because now I try to use, say, online learning using some map setup, which is a very specific um, impersonation of this, uh, of this hypothesis, can I actually trace it back to each one of my stages? Do I help people make the decision? Do I help, help the business uh, achieve its business goals? And for that, in our case, very often we rely on our experimentation platform, but the general concept is hypothesis testing, right? We try to use tools from a hypothesis testing to know if this specific setting I put in my multi-arm bandit is driving the whole chain <laughs> until the business value that I was looking for at the beginning. I, I, I love what you just said, because I think this, you know, I was hoping that we could go through one of the six lessons, you know, each of the six lessons. And, you know, I think we've basically now jumped into, uh, for those of you who've read it, <laughs> it jumped through all of them, but it feels a little bit like lesson four, right? Before solving a problem, design it. And you're talking a little bit about some of yeah. your, uh, some of your tools to do that. And to me, when I heard your answer, I heard that booking has learned through the process of sort of just experimentation and iteration to do three things when tackling a problem, generate a hypothesis, apply a broad toolkit, and then leverage measurement, right? Yep. To see how well you're doing. Yeah, I mean, hey, you said it, I'm just, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just get to hear it back. And so, so, you know, I think for me, like when I, when I think about that, um, you know, that it's not something that I think a lot of machine, I always think about this a lot, you know, machine learning professionals, we tend to come from different backgrounds. We tend to come from diverse backgrounds. As you said, I came from a bioengineering background. And when we have, when we're challenged to sort of solve machine learning problems, we each bring sort of what our field taught us but there's not quite this like set of best practices or like clear way that, you know, um, you're, you know, you're supposed to approach, approach a new problem per se, right? Sure. You know, train test set, but something like what you just said, I would love for that to be taught in, you know, machine learning classes from like a hypothesis toolkit and then measurement standpoint. Is this something, this sort of framework around problem design, something that you sort of try to teach new booking machine learning employees as they come in and emphasize? Yeah, totally. So if we see a bit the, the role description, I think we change it a bit. For a while, we're called uh, product data science, trying to make the focus that we're product makers. And now that we're, uh, the role is described as machine learning scientists, still a big part of the, of the role is focused on that. We're product makers. So things that we, for instance, we, we learn agile product development because that's the way that we're going to make products with this, right? So make, we have a very strong focus on product design and product development. That's one component in the case of ML. Across the company, we have a very strong focus on experimentation. Uh, and that means that everybody who comes to the company gets trained on experimentation, gets trained on hypothesis testing, on basic statistical concepts, and it's really across all roles on the on development. That's it's, it's a, it's a fancy way to say that we're very data-driven. That's uh, I, one thing that I, I, I like to, to mention in some cases that depends a bit on the environment, the company, the culture. In some places, you have to justify a test, right? Like, why do you need to make a test? You make a business case, you try to find a, a data. 
in booking more or less all the time, people, the first they will ask you, did you make a test? Like we have a very good testing um, environment and infrastructure. And because it's very good, it's also very simple to make tests. And we have the culture of always testing, right? Not coming up with assumption, but if it is testable, test it. And I think that kind of drives the development process. I mentioned for ML, but it's the same for design and copy. Copy comes and say, we'd like to have yeah. a better relation with our client, want to be more personal. They come up with a new set of copies. You have the hypothesis. You have your implementation of the hypothesis. You make a testable uh, setup in which you actually change the copy and call people by name, for instance, because that will be more personal. And you put it into an experiment, right? You make your measurement and you verify your hypothesis, learn and iterate. That's how we the cycle. Yeah, I think this is very helpful. And I think this helps us move on to new lessons in the paper. We've talked about, you know, lesson four around uh, problem design. And now I want to talk about sort of lesson six and, and lesson two. And all right, folks, the uh, warning is my numbering might be a little bit off here. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. Basically, these lessons talk about, you know, offline model performance is just a health check. And then experiment design pays off right? And monitoring, basically. So my question to you is, you know, I'm a, you know, sort of like a new machine learning engineer in, in, in 2021. And the discussions around monitoring and making sure that your model is doing what you actually want it to when you've done it, you know, when you've just done your sort of like isolated train test set, but doing it in the wild, it's a huge topic. Um, somehow, three years ago, and even preceding, uh, you, your team and booking as a whole was able to come up with frameworks and, and methods of implementing sort of monitoring and experimentation frameworks for machine learning models without the plethora of tools that are available now. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys built these tools from first principles um, and were able to scale sort of the lessons you learned about, you know, monitoring models in particular cases to all of those, you know, maybe 150 or however many other models you did. So like, how did you build and scale the tooling around monitoring and experimentation? Uh, so one thing is that this, there is still a lot of open question. Let's, let's put that a bit of, uh, as a caveat, but I do think that, that we have uh, been pushing for it for a while. We have a couple of things. So one thing, experimentation, as I mentioned, is not only an ML tool. So we have had it in booking culture for a while. I think we started experimenting in middle 2000. Five, eight, or something like this. It's already quite some years, and if you search a bit on on archive, you will see quite some papers uh, that we have been publishing. So we're quite a solid player in experimentation. What that basically means is that when when ML comes into the picture or any other discipline, as I mentioned, it's very simple to make an experiment. It's very simple to validate hypotheses. At least the ones that you can test in a in a randomized control trial. Some things you cannot because whatever you have to make tests that are uh, outside of our control or there are uh, other limitations. But randomized control trials in booking are very simple. You define it in the code, you define your hypothesis, you write the code in there, and there is a whole platform that sets up the uh, statistical testing, the report, there is also a whole culture on making sure that you are reading these results in the in the right way. So I think that thing, if there is anything that has been a huge enabler for product development and for machine learning, is that. Because once you have very cheap experiments, it allows you to understand what is the relation between offline metrics and online metrics. It allows you to test if your models are doing what you think they are doing. Even in the early stages of model, model development, you make some assumptions, right? Maybe the right thing to optimize for this model is RMSC, or maybe I should be actually looking for some kind of accuracy metric. Maybe I should go for something more complex, like a deep learning system that will gain me maybe a 10%. How much extra business value I get from a 10% gain on RMSC for this specific? All of these questions, which are very hard to understand from a, from a conceptual theoretical perspective, right? To what will be the impact on business of a 10% extra RMSC on something that is very user experience, like a recommendation. You can just put it in an experiment and you have the, the infrastructure to do it very cheaply and very uh, um, 
structurally correct, right? With good hypothesis testing, with good uh, guardrails. There are some areas where you can get a better connection. For instance, if you're working on something like uh, PPC or fraud, there is a much tighter connection between the quality of your model prediction and the business value that it brings. I mean, if you can detect 10% more fraud, you basically save 10% more money on fraud. There is not much question in there. But if I can be slightly better at getting my, my NDGC score for a ranker, how much more will I help my people decide? They could also scroll down and find the solution by themselves, right? That's, I changed hotel in position 15 by 16. Maybe it was the same for the user, right? They were both in the same street. So uh, that, that, that's one element. That, that's just to focus on that one. So we have the experimentation element. Then there is some things that are specific from ML. On one hand, we started developing a bit of this exploration uh, time that I, that I mentioned some years ago. We started exploring how can we better use experimentation setup that we have in Booking, very similar to what you would get in other big e-commerces, to get the most out of ML. And we, we realize, for instance, certain setups, I think it's complex to explain here in the podcast, but things that we do, for instance, for ML is try to understand when different, when different models, when you're comparing different models, where their prediction differ. It doesn't make sense to make a test between two models. If they are both decent models and they were done in, in good faith, they probably agree very often. So there is actually no difference in the two models in a, big, a large part of the population. So by focusing on the instances where the models differ, you can actually see what, how much value it is uh, adding. You can also make experimentations and setups that allow you to, to break the performance impact from the business impact. So you might have, for instance, a fancy neural network competing to a very simple knife base. Sure, you get more uh, performance on your uh, offline metrics, but also it's a lot slower. And you can decouple these two things. So you can realize how much is the impact of the added um, offline of metric performance of the model if they were both having the same impact on the site performance. And if you realize that there is a lot of impact, but the model is just super slow, okay, you invest in infrastructure. But you already know, you have the business case that this investment in infrastructure is gonna pay off. Because I already know that the model will perform better, right? That's in the, in the experimentation side. Then specifically for ML, we also started developing some years ago our own machine learning platform, which deals with stuff like model serving, feature engineering, feature serving, etc. And a component there was uh, monitoring indeed. And I think what, what made a, maybe a bit the difference in our case, or what I think that was quite productive, was again the focus on final objectives. We try to understand that our goal is not to make uh, predictions, uh, make the model predict the, the outcomes, exactly as it's going to happen in reality. Our end goal is to affect user behavior and business metrics. Uh, so maybe an example makes it a bit more, more clear, right? I could make a model that tries to predict if, I don't know, you are going to buy breakfast, and I, if I see that you are going to buy breakfast, I send you an email. Well, if I send you an email, you are probably going to buy breakfast because I send you an email. So whether my model matches the end behavior is a bit of, um, if a bit of, 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 could be a bit misleading, right? I don't know if I'm really predicting your behavior, I'm affecting your behavior. Moreover, many of the things we do get very delayed feedback, right? People can cancel the reservations. You can cancel up to a year in advance. You, uh, sorry, you can book up to a year in advance. You can cancel any time before you stay in many of our stays. So all of these things tell us that this standard, just look at your output, see if it matches the prediction, might not be uh, so useful for our end goal, which is actually affecting user behavior, understanding user behavior, affecting business metrics. And that brings the creativity. Okay, what can we do? Can we look into feature drift? Can you look into concept drift? There are actually some papers that try to look at delayed uh, feedback. We try to work on those. So what happens if I know, I mean, if I feel that delay is an issue, but what if I know that it's an issue? I know that it's delayed. I have distribution of the delay. I know how this uh, delayed feedback will behave. Can I do something on my model? 
Uh, what we discussed there in the paper is one specific thing. We put it in there because I think that was the most innovative. The other things you can find around, I mean, concept drift, feature drift, et cetera, you can find. But we put in there is this idea of uh, response uh, distributions, which is just looking at what the model says. Doesn't matter what is the reality, just looking at what the model is answering. And you can get a lot of information, right? If you see that within a typical sample of population in your training data, the model very often says, depends on the model, but says yes and not so often says no. And then you put it live and it inverts. Okay, maybe your data with your train on is not very similar to reality. Or maybe if it changes from one month to the other, it's already a red flag. And more, much more simpler things. Sometimes we have a very nice distribution with a huge peak at the value. We go and check and we just not convert in currency. Right? There are things that are tools that tell you not whether your model prediction is matching reality, just where your model is working, right? I think that was a bit the, the focus that we put. There is so much there to parse in what you just said. Also, I just want to point out to all the people listening that Pablo is actually wearing a t-shirt that says uh, rapid experimentation. So he really uh, practices what he preaches. Now, one of the um, you know sort of uh, points I want to make here, and, and one of the things in the second half of your answer, you know, I, I have questions around both halves. But you know, you really mentioned this idea of monitoring. You guys have a strong idea of your end goal and what you're actually trying to affect. And I think what stands out to me there is that because of your and this is my hypothesis, right? Um, but that because your company has such a product-focused and user-centric culture, you have a really strong idea of the real-world interactions you're trying to affect and sort of what the ideal real-world impact you want to achieve is, which is actually, I find, very difficult for machine learning professionals. Not all machine learning professionals are, are blessed with a strong uh, product um, you know, hat on their head or mindset. You know, I think I struggle with it a little bit to really say like, what are we trying to do for the user? And because you guys had that from the start, you were able to then say in a technical platform and in our monitoring solution, we have to bake in that same strong sense of the real world and the ability to capture it. Does that, does that kind of resonate? You know, it's not just output versus prediction. It's really about that real world sort of analysis. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, I, I think it's, again, it's cool company culture, right? So the company is not only about the mail, but across all of the roles is always focusing on what we want to, to achieve at, at the end. Maybe something tiny, we're just kind of completing the, the question before. We have experimentation and we have monitoring. The one part that misses a bit in there is that once you solve the experiment, you still lose the connection with the business value, right? So you make the experiment, you make the hypothesis, it's all connected to a business value. Once you go to monitoring, it's quite hard to keep the relation of where I'm affecting business value. And the one thing that we've tried, we've been exploring mostly lately, is that also like online learning, which kind of tries to keep that loop going. I think it kind of misses to this. You have the experimentation to prove your hypothesis, but it's kind of time limited, the moment in which you make this, this test. Then you have all of this monitoring tool that tells you, is anything going on that looks weird with my, my setup? Is anything breaking? Is anything moving in a way that I didn't foresee? And online learning tries to kind of bridge these two things, right? It tries to continuously assess if your model is fulfilling its uh, end, goal, end goal, right? Which is normally some kind of business or user behavior goal. Got it, got it. There's just one more question. I'm sorry, Dimitrios. I'm really, it's I'm really all good, taking man. all the time. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm enjoying it. You know, I think one thing that you said I loved, which is that you allow your uh, your team teammates to define experiments as code. Did I hear that correctly? That you can easily, that you guys have basically created an SDK that allows people to run experiments in their code pretty seamlessly? Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and that's kind of common in big as e-commerce, right? You have some companies use external vendors, some companies are internally, but uh, I would say that's big e-commerce heavy and big companies heavy. And I think it's a very big enabler for a company to have very simple ways to do hypothesis testing. That's what makes you data-driven, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think 
I, I, you know, I've heard that Airbnb has a great experimentation platform. I think, you know, there's actually a book that our, our good friend Luigi Petruno was talking about when it came to running experiments um, and how, you know, Microsoft and, and, and you know, how uh, Airbnb and others enable it. My question is, could you talk us through the workflow for that a little bit? Because, you know, as somebody working at a smaller company, one thing we always uh, struggle with is, you know, we try to do, try to learn from best company, you know, big companies and, and you know, replicate what they're doing, but without necessarily knowing exactly what their exact workflow looks like and how intensive it is and what parts of the workflow you want to, you know, borrow from. So we'd love to understand, like, if I'm a data okay. scientist, well, how do I define One thing that I, would, that I would recommend you and, the, and your listeners, there is a, a very recent paper, I, I can try to look for the reference, but it's actually from the head of experimentation of many of these companies. So there is uh, the guy who was uh, working on experimentation in Booking. I think there is, I don't know if how he was in there, he was in Microsoft, he was in Airbnb. There is one guy from Microsoft for sure. So there is like six of these uh, persons who are all leaders on experimentation on their company. So they wrote a paper exactly on how to create and develop an experimentation culture and infrastructure within a company. It's a super nice paper if you are in a company that does not have this culture and this infrastructure to understand what are the different elements. And, and what they are doing there a bit is, uh, is a bit of a play between developing infrastructure and developing culture. You have to do these two things together to make sure the infrastructure is uh, invested on and is producing value that, that is connected to that investment and is well used. That's a bit their, their argument in there. Um, in the case of Booking, as you mentioned, the infrastructure, of course, it, it happened because of poor, poor investment, but it's in there. We already have quite a, quite a solid one. If you see a bit how the flows uh, goes in practice, what I would highlight is the flow is hypothesis testing. So the flow is basically the scientific method in practice. You write down an hypothesis, you start with a theory, the theory becomes a testable hypothesis. So your theory is that users will engage better on the platform if they will help them with the decision. Then you make a testable hypothesis. I will help them with the decision by ranking properties with their value proposition. And then I actually uh, implement that into code, modeling, etc. Once you have it in there, you have to basically do an experimental design. Now, if you're in, a, in an e-commerce, the experimental designs of randomized control trial are more or less easy to set up. You divide users. And in the case of an SDK, it's very simple. In the code, you literally put in one line, uh, experiments start here. This is code for version A. This is code for version B. Uh, the SDK will send the message to the experimentation platform. Experimentation platforms take care of the login, and then it processes the data to generate an statistically valid report. Uh, there is a lot of assumptions that go into having a, a valid statistical result. And that goes a bit into the culture part and a bit on the guardrails and infrastructure sets to make sure that the result you are going to see is valid and that you're analyzing it in the right way. We have those guardrails in the company. We have the experimentation tool, putting some warnings, trying to, to help people in there. But basically, once you set up, you just start experiment. You get a super nice uh, monitoring uh, interface where you can see how your test is going. You wait for the test result. You see all the statistical results. And the, the, the way that, that we see this is that the tool, and I understand it's similar in different uh, companies. The tool provides you information that you can use for decision making. So at the end of the test, you know if you validated your hypothesis, and then you can decide whether you go forward, whether you stop, or whether you iterate. Normally, this kind of test also gives you a lot of additional data, not only the main hypothesis, I don't know, users went quicker to the funnel, uh, reviews went higher, whatever is your main metric. You can also understand how this happened. And through the understanding, you can iterate in your idea. Maybe the idea didn't work out, but you realize that you reduced errors. Or frustration went down because you see, a, I don't know, CS contacts went down then allows you to iterate, oh, it didn't work for what I thought, but maybe I can exploit this other uh, bet that I found in here, right? Is that answer with your question? Or? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think what I'm learning and what I'm, what I'm thinking now is, you know, these experimentation platforms are an inspiration, you know, to other, you know, MLOps platforms and, and, and how, you know, how those have developed. It's very similar in some respects, you know, in terms of workflows you want to enable. Yep. Uh, I'm wondering about the, when it comes to this experimentation platform and it seems like, so I have, I kind of have two questions here for you. One is the experimentation platform is there a whole platform team that has to keep that intact? And, and was that a large undertaking to create that? And then the other question that I have is when it's not something like putting a new model into play and it's more something like we need a new tool and that is the experiment that we want to experiment on, how does that work? Because I imagine it doesn't go through the experimentation platform. Well, you could be surprised about that. Very often doesn't. <laughs> But sometimes we try. No, no. The you ask you ask the questions in there. I mean, the first one I think is very generic about of any companies with engineering, right? So you have to make investment to make your infrastructure better. If you have a use case that is generic, then it's easier to make the investment uh, because many people can profit from it. And in the case of experimentation, I think that's usually the case. As long as your company is scaling up, experimentation is such a powerful tool for everyone that the investment is not justified. If you see it currently in booking for most of the team, it's almost uh, free to make an experiment because the cost is divided across the whole organization. And that's the same thing you could say about uh, machine learning serving, right? So we also have a machine learning uh, infrastructure team that provides serving and monitoring and feature management, et cetera. It's the same idea. The investment is too high for a single model, but once you manage to serve the needs of the whole company, it actually becomes a, a feasible investment. For a smaller companies, there is, of course, a lot of providers also, right? They made a big investment and you are just a user, you have to pay a little more for the service, but you don't have to develop your own capability. Hold for ML serving, for ML monitoring, hold for uh, experimentation. To your second question, I think it goes back to the hypothesis testing and data-drivenness culture in the company. So it's not always things are tested through an experiment, not always tested through a randomized controlled trial. But we do try to hold ourselves accountable to some kind of hypothesis testing process. Sometimes you really cannot, right? You push as much as, as, as you can. In the case of tooling, you basically do the hypothesis and you acknowledge that in some cases you will not be able to measure it. In other cases, you follow normal agile development of project management techniques like miles and OKRs, et cetera, to at least trace whether you are achieving your goals. But I would say in some cases you really cannot uh, measure the impact. But if possible, you will do it. For instance, in the case of infrastructure, we very often, if we still have the infrastructure live, we just test them both and you can an experiment that runs in the back end. So if you have the model running on our main engine and you have a model running independently, well, you serve all of them and you make a performance experiment where you can assess stuff like loading time of the page, cost for the company, uh, work clock time, actual server time, etc. You still can experiment on those if possible. Of course, when not, I mean, you, you do have to make a bit of the leap of faith in those cases. Mm. Last thing that I wanted to ask before we jump into deployment and serving is around what metrics you're looking at. You touched on it a little bit, but I know this is a question that comes up a lot in the MLOps community. And it's really asking about what metrics should I be monitoring and how you can relate those back to the business value. Yeah. Uh... There is a different layers in there. So on one hand, we have our business or business goals or our business unit goal, which could be monetary, could be conversion, could be user satisfaction, could be operational, right? Like workload for our CS agents and revenue for our partners, et cetera, right? So you have this kind of metrics. 
that's at the end your end goal, right? So ideally you want to do something, you are either measuring that or you are measuring proxies for that or things that you know that are going to alert you when that is, uh, is, is going to break, right? When that's possible, we do that. That's normally only possible in experimentation setups. For most of the of cases, this very clear connection because the, the path between the ML model and this business value is quite blurry. What you can do is you put in an experiment and experiment if you have a good randomized control trial or if you have a, a, another hypothesis testing setup, it kind of assumes that whatever the path, you are going to see the end effect on this metrics, right? That's, that's a one dimension. Once you know that's not possible, you start looking for proxies. So if my hypothesis was that I was going to affect this user behavior by being able to rank better, okay, can I at least track if I'm ranking better? If I know that's going down, then I know that I have a problem. The other metrics that I mentioned now, for instance, is respond distribution chart or the, the drift is also a way of a proxy to put a red flag. So I know that I tested this in an experiment in a certain situation. Can I use drift measurement and, and monitoring to know what, when my current model is differing from that one that I tested at the time with the business metric? So if these things differ too much, maybe it's time to go and check it again. Because I cannot guarantee that they were in the same situation as when I made my, my initial uh, test. And then you start going into the proxy. I mean, there are things that are very obvious proxies, for instance, the, the delay between request and response. You know, if you are doing something that is serving front end, that will have an impact. But again, you might have data that allow you to connect it better. So we have made experiments in which we on purpose delay the responses to understand when do we have an impact. And that can tell you what to look for in the lab. So we know that delay of, I don't know, quarter of a second, just to give an example, it's not coming up with a number, but you can experiment and rely on three specific feature, quarter of a second is not an issue, half a second is an issue. Then I know what kind of uh, threshold and alerts I have to put on my, on my backend to monitor it, right? Got it, yeah. I think I'm a very happy camper right now because I think we have walked through monitoring we've talked about evaluation we've talked about uh the problem design we've talked about you know um offline model performance and and how that is is just a health check as the, as the paper said so we've gotten through a, a lot of the lessons in the paper and there's one that stands out and that's deployment and yeah, deployment, okay. deployment yep yep deployment time is money and i think everybody listening would absolutely agree that they feel that way about model deployment um one of the this is it's a topic that comes up a lot in the community you know how do you deploy models how do you do it repeatably how do you do it reliably um you know that process it's also it's it's really you know perhaps the most nebulous component of putting a model into production because you know what does deployment really mean well it's putting it in front of users and you know everybody's user is a little bit different and so you know, my question to you in terms of, you know, just discussing this deployment topic, how would you summarize um, the lessons learned about model deployment at booking.com? You know, I know it's a big question, but maybe we can just start with the first few that come to mind. No, indeed. Um, again, if, if, if people have time, we have a, a blog where we publish more, most of our ML and IE content. It's uh, booking.ie, uh, artificial intelligence. We'll and in there you it. will find a, a publication from uh, Lucas Bernardi where he explains how it our, our ML engine or ML deployment infrastructure. The concept in general is, is a bit that's what I mentioned before, right? You start making models within your team, you hack something together with a developer for one specific use case. But once you realize that you can make a better system and it scales to more teams, that allows you to invest more on it. And that's what happened in Booking over the last years. We started doing this kind of localized deployment. And we realized that there were a lot of common use cases that could be served by a common infrastructure, which means that you can more efficiently build it, more efficiently monitor it, and then develop it further. Because now your business case uh, grows from one specific model, one specific team, to serving a much broader uh, need. 
And we've been working on that already for, for several years. Now we have a platform that we use for deploying a big part of our, of our models. The, there is one thing that, that Lucas mentioned in the, in the publication, which I really like how he phrased it in there, which is that we translated one of our company core values, which is the, the respect for diversity. We translate it also into our ML platform. So what we try to do in there is that we try to provide users tools that allows them uh, to be diverse on how they approach ML problems. And some companies would maybe focus on one specific thing and say, okay, when I use TensorFlow, my whole deployment is going to be focused on TensorFlow or in something different, right? We try to basically prioritize our development by how many use cases can we serve, especially how many different use cases. And you can get very concrete um, outcomes, actions from it. For instance, one of the first things that we productionized was lookup tables. It's a very, very simple way to put something in production. You literally pre-compute every possible combination from your model and put it into a Cassandra table where people can query. It's not the most sexy thing. It's not super smart, but it's super general. You can have any model you like. You can use any programming language. You just tell me what I have to say in every occasion. I put it on a table and you look it up, right? So that's a very concrete action that comes from this idea of I want to support diversity within my, my ML community. Then you start going, you see, for instance, linear models. I mean, linear models sounds very simple, but you can support a very broad range uh, of things. I mean, with linear models, you can do a uh, one-layer neural network, a uh, linear regression, a logistic regression, a naive-based model. Uh, there is a broad set of things you can do just by having a linear engine. So you make the block. And then you start moving. If you put TensorFlow, okay, now you have all of the set of stuff that TensorFlow allows. If you put H2O, okay, H2O has a lot of differences that you can support in there, right? That's, I think that's a bit the philosophy that has been uh, followed in there try to serve as many use cases. And of course, that also resonates with the with business because the most use cases you can support, the more return you will get in your investment. Therefore, you can make a better investment. That is a, a brilliant approach. I love that story about lookup tables. And, you know, I think it's, it's instructive because I think a lot of companies, I, I know I have this mindset sometimes nowadays, it's, you know, what's in vogue, you know, what is popular in terms of the deployment solution. Uh, let me adopt those sort of strict frameworks rather than thinking again from the perspective of what's the real problem. You know, I think we're actually going through a model development challenge right now. And it's like, you know, the question is, is like, how specifically do you engineer it and use all the tools that are available versus how generally do you want it to work? You know, and it takes patience if you want to go general because you need to take a long term view towards all the other use cases you want to support. You know, it's harder to see that immediate return investment, I think. That's the challenge that I've been having. Um, and, you know, in the paper, you mentioned a really interesting sort of learning about how latency became a challenge. Uh, one thing that we love in the community and love hearing on podcasts are war stories and just stories about how you got to a particular point of learning or insight. I'd love to know, can you tell us a story of a model where you realized that latency was becoming a challenge when it came to business performance? I to think, I mean, I cannot recall a specific one right now, but I can tell you a bit because it's happened many, many times. So I cannot put you a specific example. But what I can tell you is uh, how we realized that it was a challenge. And it goes back to the same topics we have been talking, right? We have a very strong experimentation platform and that allows us to make very fancy experiments. So in one setup that we normally uh, use, what we do is that we have our base behavior, we have a certain model serving a certain function, and we have a competing model. And what we can do is we can try to isolate different parameters. So we can, for instance, slow down the current model until the other model answers. So you keep the same model, but you introduce a delay of the second one. Or you can put the same delay on both, you call both models, and none of the two can answer until both of them have answers. So if you put that setup, you see that when you wait for both models, you're only comparing their 
label their prediction, right? Because they have both have the same delay. Well, if you take the fast model and the delay to the other one, you're only testing the effect of the delay. So this kind of experiment allows us in very many occasions to isolate the impact of the improvement on the prediction quality or whatever the model is trying to achieve from the performance. And even though I cannot give you a specific example, we really saw it many times that you could have an improved performance on the model output and an improved user experience once you put both of them at the same performance level, which is normally no lower. Well, if you take the model that was uh, performing simpler, so linear regressions normally are performing quite fast, you might still get a better result in the user, even though the outcome is not that, that good. I mean, you can imagine the, this kind of stories. I mean, you, you go for a system that is doing a simple linear regression and you move into something that is a very fancy neural network setup, it will be slower. You probably will go, are going to get a much better uh, outcome. It doesn't mean that you don't do it, but isolating the different components allows you to make the investment. So, so oh, maybe you can try to look for a better way to make this neural network. Can I deploy it in a faster way? Can I use better hardware? Because now I can isolate the, the effect. Can I pre-compute it? That was a bit of the idea also with the, with the lookup tables. Maybe I say, okay, this model is super slow, but actually there are not that many features. It's a million combinations. It's put in a Cassandra table and you can get it out of there, right? So at the risk of this one needing to be cut out of the episode, I got to ask, any of the stuff that you've been building at Booking, is there any thought of open sourcing it? Yeah, so Booking has an open source uh, program, let's say. Uh, it has a set, a set of uh, components in there. I think in the ML side, we haven't open sourced it so much. In the developer side, yes, especially we're one of the biggest Perl shops in the world right now. And we actually maintain a lot of the, of the base packages Perl. We maintain some of the versions of Perl. In the case of ML, we also have some components that we have tried to, to open source. I think we have done in a couple of cases, as in many companies, right? You have to make sure that, I think the main policy behind it, if we're going to open source something in the name of booking, we have to make sure to maintain it. We just we don't want to put broken code outside mm. that is going to fail, will not be maintained. And I think that's a, that the main limitation. We have to make sure that we are open sourcing something that we are willing and able to maintain enough that is uh, mm. actually, that we're willing to put our name behind it. Yeah, otherwise you shoot yourself in the foot. And you, it doesn't give a good look. So uh, playing on that question, I guess, the next question I have is, do you feel like there is, when it comes to the platform that you're using at Booking, is there enough of what you're doing with the ML side and the platform and maybe this experimentation platform or just the serving platform if these things were to be open sourced, do you feel like right now in the machine learning world, there's enough standards around for it to be used by others or would it be a heavy lift? Like I keep coming back to this because a lot of people have been talking about whether or not there are enough standards or whether or not tools can plug and play with each other well enough right now because the the ecosystem is so young and it needs more maturing. Do you feel like there is enough of these standards or do you, you think that it would need to be more like, like would people be able to get value out of it? If that makes any sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I'll tell you, I think I get a bit the, the question. I'm not working specifically on the on the platform side, but what I can see is that there is already quite some companies out there who are open sourcing things and companies who are selling these kind of platforms. And in the case of Booking, as I mentioned, with our focus on diversity, we use many of these platforms already. So I 
if I see it as a user, yes, we're getting value from the community of uh, both open sources and uh, commercial ventures that are delivering this. So it, it seems that there are some value. They do operate more or less independently, many of them, right? Uh, if you go into a deep learning area, there are some connections. If you see things like PyTorch, uh, TensorFlow, they have some common concepts that you may be able to, to translate. But many of these things are a bit isolated still, right? That doesn't mean you cannot use them. They are all using the same kind of base platform. They are all using Kubernetes. You can deploy them in your cloud, right? When you go in that direction, it seems that the environment is such that you are able to use components from different areas. Uh, I haven't seen that many examples of these things interoperating so easily, but again, I'm not in the in the platform side, though. Hmm. All right. So as far as the paper goes, lessons that you have learned since. Anything that you would add to the paper now that it's been some time since it was written? Totally. So I think there are maybe two main things. One thing I already mentioned a bit, which is this, uh, the focus, uh, the late focus on online learning. So many of the things that we were doing at the time were testing through experiment. These are kind of limited on time. And then we had monitoring as much as we could, right? And I, we're moving a bit more into online learning because it connects these two worlds. It allows you to continuously monitor the business value. And you can see the difference. You have online learning, you have continuous retraining, you have all of different dimensions that all try to look for a way to keep your model up to date with the business value it's supposed to, to generate. That would be one dimension. Uh, the other one is maintainability. It sounds very nice to have 150 successes, but it's not so nice to maintain 150 things in parallel. And one thing that uh, we have been uh, working on is trying to, to structure together some of the solutions. So at some point you look at this, okay, these 10 problems are actually one problem that we decided to solve 10 times. Can we somehow structure a common solution? And actually, these things are meeting uh, often like in booking. So we're taking some of these problems and structuring it in a way that we can package it into a single online learning solution. And you see it happening a bit more in the company. It gives you more maintainability, um, uh, better monitoring, more scalability. Again, because you unite, you join different business cases, and you get a stronger business case, which allows you to put more investment behind it, right? I think that's, that's the main lesson. It actually connects these two things, right? It's try to get a structure into this exploration phase we had with the 150 uh, successes and try to make them more into proposals that are more common, that are more uh, applicable in wider areas. While online learning allows you to keep them uh, well-performing. Hmm. I love the way that you think about that and how you want to basically generalize them enough to gain more value out of a model and reuse it and, and see the success in other areas that you may not have thought they could be successful in in the beginning. As far as the maintainability goes, and this was something that I was going to ask at uh, the last question when you were talking about how you want to make sure that there's that diversity that is available within all of the different frameworks that people are using or whatever they choose to use, you want to support it. Is that not a really heavy lift? Is, does that not make it much harder to maintain? Sure. Yeah, it's a nice question. So that's the other dimension on the platform, right? So we want to maintain as many use cases as we want to make sure that the system is stable. So again, if you go to the example of the of the lookup table, it's a Cassandra database, right? So as I said, I think that's the best example because it allows you the machine learning practitioner to use whatever modeling approach they like, while the deployment solution is a Cassandra table. Same thing for the linear model. If whatever modeling approach you are doing ends up in a table of linear coefficient, then I make a Java-based linear coefficient engine that only has to do that, and I can support it with Java, Java uh, engineers, right? And then we just are going deeper. If you go something like PyTorch or TensorFlow, they have their own uh, runtime engines. So you can do whatever you like in TensorFlow, serialize it, and then we maintain a TensorFlow engine. 
We do also have, for instance, some uh, script runners for Python, things like this, but we're very careful in deploying them in production because those are the ones where you have the least uh, gut rates, right? By this, we try to have something that you can somehow serialize and then you have a separate running engine that is maintained. So it, it actually ties into the same uh, logic, right? Try to support as many use cases while keeping the stability of the platform. Yeah, I think what I point out there that I hear is if your interfaces are simple, you can solve that problem of maintainability versus generalizability, right? Like the Cassandra lookup table, it's it's a it's a simple interface for any kind of any kind of model or modeling workflow can fit into. Um, and I don't know. That's just that's just kind of the takeaway that I have for it. And uh, I just want to thank you, Pablo, so much for joining us on this awesome, awesome coffee session. I feel very happy we got through all of the lessons and we got two more. That's eight lessons from booking.com on how to serve 150 machine learning models. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting. Have a nice day. Yeah. All right. That's it for now. And we'll 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 hear it from you guys and, and we'll be talking more MLOps on the next coffee session. Thanks for listening.